Hello everyone, welcome to Random Encounter 247 or 247. My name is John O'Logan and we are going to be doing something a little bit different today. Uh, it's something that we've done in the past, actually. It's going to be Random Book Club. Uh, we usually talk about video games here. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the 18th century novel. No, we're not. We're going to be talking about <laughs> video game books. Um, we're talking about, uh, actually, uh, there was a review that recently got put up on RPG Fan. Uh, it's another one of Bitmap Books' uh, opuses because these things are opuses and it is a review for the art of point and click adventure games uh the review was by hillary hi hillary hello um and uh it's it's you know talking about the third edition this is the third edition of this book there have been you know three of them uh bitmap books presents uh and i don't know we, we uh, when you were last on i guess i'm just going to call this segment random book club even though it's the it we've never actually had a segment called random book club but we might <laughs> in the future because i like talking about video game books um yeah. the last time you were on here talking about books we were talking about a guide to japanese role-playing games which was also by bitmap books in yes. which we also got an exclusive uh excerpts and uh and uh an exclusive review for they seem to really like us and that's good because we really really like them and we really like the uh the things that they put out we do indeed and yeah um it, it also helps when you have uh steph around to discuss her gorgeous cover art oh yeah yeah steph uh our our social our social media manager steph um did the cover art for the uh, uh the role-playing game book and it is just as everything steph draws is gorgeous this this is gorgeous. And it, it really, the cover of that book evokes so many uh, feelings of nostalgia for me. Me too. She captured that sort of feeling perfectly. And I'm really excited for the, the reception that it, that it got too on the, on the site, you know, yeah. on the review and the, the time it was published. People seem really excited. So I'm hoping to keep up some of that momentum with more book reviews for their stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, the last book was... I guess it was, well, you could say it was a group effort, but there was a group effort from uh, dozens and dozens of game journalists across the spectrum, including a few of them from RPG Fan. Um, mm -hmm. This book, on the other hand, does have a, uh, a bit more of a, a select group working on it. Um, and uh, I'm just going to list the names here because sometimes the, you know, with when it comes to, I guess, coffee table books like this uh, that are released under Bitmap Books or, you know, a, a publisher, they don't really get that, that recognition. So uh, it was designed by Steve, D if I mispronounce any of these names, I apologize. Uh, it was designed by Sam Dyer. It was edited by Steve Jarrett. It was, the writing in it was by Mike Bevan, Will Freeman, Julian Hill, and Damian McFerrin. Uh, the interviews in it were by Mike Bevan, Damian McFerrin, Casper Newbolt, and Julian Rignall. Uh, the custom pixel art in it was by Craig Stevenson. And the screen captures were by Gonzalo Lopez and Patrick Spacek. So yeah, these folks were the ones who put together the book. And frankly, especially the people who did the interviews, uh, I have to say that I am frankly jealous because some of the interviews in this book, some of the people they got are uh, some of the biggest names in adventure game history, mm -hmm. uh, including like Tim Schafer, uh, Ron Gilbert, uh, Jane Jensen. Uh, it's it's really, well, okay, for, let's, let's just talk about the book for a sec. So it's called The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games. And it is about it is about the art of point-and-click adventure games. There is some, uh, there's some absolutely beautiful uh, artwork in here showing like full layouts of screens and, uh, and various versions of the games. And in mm -hmm. some places, even like design documents and things like that, that have been, I've never seen before. Yeah. But it's not just a matter of showcasing uh, the visuals. It's also a matter of talking about 
some of the folks who were behind the art, uh, talking about, well, the artists, the designers, and in some cases, the writers. It, like, I know a lot about point-and-click adventure games and the history of them. I played much of the history of point-and-click adventure games, and I learned a ton of stuff that I didn't know uh, that was in this book. I mean, the, the interviews covered a lot of interesting ground. Uh, they flowed well, and yeah, I I absolutely learned a ton as well going through I think one of my, like in looking stuff up about the book and thinking about it, I think one of my, the favorite ideas that I kind of came across was the idea that they, you know, there are these beautiful double page spreads and Bitmap Books really always pays beautiful attention to their printing and their graphics and things like that. But it's also about, you know, the art of creating the entire game. It kind of looks at that at the creation process of the game, the whole game is a work of art too. That's what it is. And there are all, there's also quite a bit in here that is original art too. Like one of my favorite things about the book is at the beginning of uh, the vast majority of the interviews, they have little pixel art versions of the, uh, of the developer or the person they're interviewing. Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's, it's great uh, because they're stylized very much as they would be in classic pixel art point and click adventure games. Definitely. I think one of my favorites, I don't know if you have a favorite pixel art portrait, but I think the, uh, I think it's Robin Miller uh, that they interviewed for the Mist series. And that just seeing his pixel art cracked me up because I'm used to seeing him and his brother from, you know, the video FMV capture from the actual Mist games themselves. So mm. it was just a, <laughs> such a funny treat. In an alternate world where Mist yes. is a point and click adventure game. <laughs> Yes. That's what you're getting. Um, okay, well, let, let's talk about point-and-click adventure games and um, just for fun, our respective history with them. Like for me, uh, I get into RPGs. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my first real exposure to point-and-click adventure games was through Maniac Mansion for the NES. And I didn't know it was a PC or a, I didn't know it was on DOS. I didn't have a personal computer back then. I just had my NES. Uh, and it was an awesome despite the fact that Nintendo made them do some interesting things censorship wise, <laughs> oh, very they? interesting things. Um, they, uh, the maniac mansion point and click adventure game for NES is very, very true to the original and it plays great. Um, and then years later I was in Walmart, like many years later I was in Walmart and walked by, uh, one of their LucasArts adventure game treasure collections or something like that. And it had, uh, maniac mansion day, the tentacle salmon max hit the road and, uh, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis in one oh, package. Oh, what a great find. <laughs> yeah, and I I was like, Maniac Mansion? What's this? Yay! And I got it, and I uh, quickly discovered that my parents' computer could not play it. It was that old. Uh, it would install it, but it wouldn't play it because oh, no. uh, so there was something wrong with the sound card. But eventually we figured it out, and it became one of my favorite point-and-click adventure games, and that started my love affair with the entire genre. Oh, that's great. What was your or, or your origin story with point-and-click adventure games? Well, I have definitely had many instances, you know, throughout the 90s and the early 2000s of trying to play point-and-click adventure games and having sound cards or various things going wrong. No sound um, cards. I think it's just, you know, comes with the territory. But my family, we were, I think, relatively early adopters computer-wise, honestly. So my first, I think, my first point-and-click adventure game was King's Quest IV. So I'm a little bit more familiar with things from the Sierra side. So I played King's Quest first, a few of the different King's Quest games. You're the Coke to my Pepsi. <laughs> yes, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I learned more about the genre and as they started releasing some of those, you know, box sets, 
in the later CD-ROM days, um, I was able to kind of go back and like check out some LucasArts games too. And just really, I was super excited to see Rosella in the lead role in a video game as like, mm. you know, a, I don't know, seven-year-old, I think, girl. And that's how it started. Yeah, female protagonists back then were uh, rare. So when it happened, especially when it happened in a way that didn't feel uh exploited like there she wasn't like she wasn't a damsel in distress she wasn't being portrayed as a sex object or anything like that she was a character mm -hmm. uh that was fairly rare back then i mean ar arguably it's still rare now but back then it was uh it was it was an it was a departure uh but not for sierra because sierra was known for its uh female creators mm -hmm. um especially in comparison to just about every other studio out there like uh well i, I mean the founders of it, Ken and Roberta Williams of Sierra Systems, uh, were pioneers uh, in terms of adventure games, like obviously King's Quest 1, which, okay, well, that's an interesting thing that the book talks about, which is um, Sierra adventure games, especially in the earlier days, were technically not point and click because they didn't use a mouse. Correct. Uh, yeah, they used text parser and mm -hmm. uh, the directional keys on the keyboard to get around. So instead of... Uh, like LucasArts style being like uh, you go down, you click on the verb open, you click on the door and your character opens the door. You would have to type in, I open the door or open the door and make sure your character was beside the door. And then your open character door. would open the door. You're not exactly. close enough. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that would lead to a lot of problems that uh, if you didn't get the exact right combination of words, oh, uh, yeah, it wouldn't understand you, um, which was a bit of a clunky system. <laughs> I actually... Uh, the end of my review kind of plays with that a little bit. Yeah, I, I saw that. The uh, the text parser was a, a really nice touch. Thanks. Get book. What book? Yep. <laughs> no, to be more specific. Exactly. <laughs> the Witch Edition is a funny joke. Have you ever seen? Um, oh, there's a uh, there's a music video by. Um, wow, it's it's funny when something that you know really well, Jonathan Colton. Uh, oh yeah. He released Solid State and uh, uh, the song All This Time. Uh, the music video of it is a text adventure. Okay, I need to see this. It is amazing. I'll send it to you after. Uh, yeah, the official, uh, his last album, uh, Solid State, which I love. Uh, the entire video is just a text adventure game uh, of the classic type. So I'll send that to you. Um, anyway, the point is that uh, most graphic adventure games grew out of text adventure games, including the, in some ways, the input method. Like you could move your character around with the with the arrow keys, but realistically speaking, it just added a graphical component where the, the soul of it was still, uh, pick up the rock. I don't see a rock, pick up the big rock. Oh, okay. Um, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until a few years later that, uh, the mouse started catching on specifically, uh, with Apple computers because yep. yeah, the, it was the first, you know, the Apple computers were the first one that actually had a mouse, uh, point and click adventure games started evolving from there. Uh, and then LucasArts of course got on the verb train. Uh, and uh, point-and-click adventure games started developing out of that. Now, I, technically, I would still classify Sierra, early Sierra games as point-and-click adventure games, I guess, just because they're the origin of the genre. Like, would you? What would you think? Yeah, th that's kind of the conclusion I arrived at as well, just because they're so closely related. And everything I think that Sierra's done was sort of inspired by kind of those very early, like, text-based games. It's funny, my... My big takeaway I, of this, of like some of the interviews, especially with uh, Ken Williams and uh, Ron Gilbert, and then talking about some of their teams and some of the people who worked at both Sierra and uh, LucasArts or LucasFilm's game, LucasFilm Games, that was known in the earlier days, 
uh, while they were still having to deal with the same, all the same problems we have today with crunch and things like that, uh, both of them seemed like incredible places to work, um, just like magical places to work in terms of these were people who were doing things that had never doing things that had never been done before. And they were figuring out genres and it, it, it kind of made me feel jealous. Like, could you imagine being part of those teams? That dovetails with a big takeaway of mine, which is just how instrumental and how much point and click adventure games are part of the development of how we've used computers. Oh yeah. In general. And they, they, really pushed things along and as computers changed they they were the ones determining you know a lot of new interfaces and what you couldn't couldn't do and pushing the limits of the hardware well i think for people who are listening to this podcast uh rpg fans specifically uh both adventure games and rpgs offered them something that a lot of video games back then didn't have which was well story and characters mm-hmm. like before before graphics uh, and action could catch up, uh, adventure games were telling epic tales with like really well-developed characters in a way that was impossible for other genres of video games at the time. To do, yeah, at all. Yeah, and, and out of that, I mean, most games today, most games, any I would actually argue any game that has a uh, significant narrative component today owes a massive debt to point-and-click adventure games and are direct descendants of those games, even if they are technically uh, in a different genre. Looking at your visual novels. I'm just kidding. Exactly. Well, let's take Myst, for example, which yeah. is a point-and-click adventure game. It's a first-person point-and-click adventure game. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that could you could easily see how that perspective evolved into things that are technically not point-and-click adventure games, but like uh, Curse of Oberdin. Um, yes. Or uh, their, I think it's Obduction, their spiritual successor to Mist, which is technically not a point and click adventure game, but is very much a, you know, it feels a lot like Mist. Like they have the different areas, which are the different ages and things like that. It's it's a great game. It really does. <laughs> which I recommend that people play because it was pretty cool. What, one of the things that really drew my attention to the in the book that they kept talking about, uh, which blows my mind. I mean, I, I guess I knew this academically, but it's the fact that point and click adventure games even in their heyday like the greatest the greatest point and click adventure games of all time were never really all that profitable right in so many of the interviews you kind of get the sense of like on one hand knowing that these games were popular and are popular and they had this great kind of word of mouth but on the other hand how many copies did they actually sell and how much money did they actually make so yeah it's really interesting yeah like it kills me that uh where I'm, I'm trying to, I, I don't, I doubt I'm going to be able to find the exact section, but I think it's in the Ron Gilbert uh, interview where uh, they're talking about Secret of Monkey Island. And it's like, yeah, we sold like 50,000 50, copies. It wasn't a big hit at the time. The only reason it got a sequel is because the sequel was already in production when we released the game. And it's like, holy crap, that's insane. Because you think Monkey Island and you think like, that's one of the biggest adventure game franchises of all time. Right. But like, it didn't even sell a million units in its initial release. I guess also there was the install base and things like that and a variety of, it was only on one platform, but it's still mind blowing when you think about video game and the, the business today. Yeah. I think that might've been in the, I want to say it's in the Dave Grossman interview. One of the coolest things I found about the book is going through, well, first off, there are a lot of games that they talk about in here that I, I guess I've heard about in the past, but I never really knew about or played. And I would like to actually play them now, like some, especially from some indie developers uh, that I just, I never uh, knew about. I'm trying to find an example here. Um, 
Goblins, for example. Yeah, that looks like a really good one. Uh, I did not know that the Sun and the Sorcerer games were voiced by like half the cast of Red Dwarf, which is a show that's very dear to me. So mm-hmm. I feel like I need to go and play those now. And I mean, I also got to relive some of my childhood cringe because like I said, back when I was a kid, I would play, I, would, I, I loved point and click adventure games. They were my favorite genre. So like I got a, it was a compilation, all, I guess all five, technically, if you go by the numbering system, six of the Leisure Suit Larry games. And uh, to my like 10 year old self, that was, oh my goodness, they were, they were very adult and very risque. And uh, I'm a little embarrassed by that now because they're kind of cringe when, like you mentioned Leisure Suit Larry, it's like, that's. Uh, mm, that, yeah. yeah, that is something that uh, may not have aged well at all. I, I would argue it's probably the Sierra uh, series that has aged the worst out yes. of them. And there's actually a little tidbit in there. I think in the Ken Williams interview where they heard some like financers or I don't know who it was, but someone like editing or like looking at their games talking about at the time, like those awful sexist laser shoot Larry games. I think my favorite line in the whole thing was Al Lowe being like, yeah, we were working on it. And one of the, one of the, uh, one of the designers was a born again Christian. So we refused to do anything for the game. So it was just us, which I thought was pretty funny. That is actually, I think um. I think that's also true of um mark siebert who did a lot of the sierra music but that's okay because i think Allo also is pretty musically inclined so i'm sure they were all right <laughs> yeah i'm just like i have a copy i have the second edition uh the actual second edition oh by the way i should mention to anyone if they have bought the first i don't maybe it's not the first edition but if you bought the second edition uh of the book uh bitmap books sent me a free pdf uh update of it so uh i you know i i read the third edition uh, for this book club, um, even though I only have the second edition, but uh, it's the same book. It's like there's just some there's some additional content. Uh, I was hoping, Hillary, why don't you tell us what else is what what's what's new with the third edition? Um, sure. Let's do an overview of what's new in the third edition. Uh, you mentioned that the book is mostly chronological, with the inter- interviews kind of interspersed. Mm-hmm. Um, so they extended the date. So the third edition has games through 2021. Yeah, the uh, the second edition ends in 2020. So that's really exciting. Uh, and current. They still make so adventure games in 2021. <laughs> uh, and actually the big 2021 game is Genesis Noir, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then the other Strangeland. Um, so yeah, they did some chronological updates. And then we mentioned the Grossman interview. Um, yeah, Dave Gilbert from Wanjadai is another big interview yes he is the designer of uh many many uh point and click adventure games of the recent years including unavowed uh and uh he has a new one coming out in a few months uh or maybe years i'm not sure when it's coming out but it looks amazing called uh old skies yeah our our uh preview of it was very positive so yeah neil wrote a preview of it for us we'll have to link to that but i'm really excited to check it out and um let's see how i'm gonna butcher the name but the developer of um kathy rain oh yeah right um joel hasto yes kathy rain is an interesting game uh I think I think i wrote a, i think i wrote the review for the director's cut actually i know i wrote the review for the director's cut um and i liked it uh i didn't love it I played the original, um, but one thing that I cannot possibly say against it, it, it is a gorgeous game and yes. uh, 
with some excellent puzzles and things like that. My pro, I had a few problems with it, but on the whole, it's great. Um, I love indie point and click adventure games. Like, well, we were talking about my history of point and click adventure games. Uh, a lot of the stuff that came out of uh, uh, Wadjet uh, games, uh, they're developed on the uh, Adventure Gaming Studio yes. uh, platform. And this is a open source platform that is available to anyone who wants to use it. But like years and years and years ago, uh, I was I was downloading these. Essentially, they were fan, they were fan made games. They were developers, but they were like amateur game designers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the some of the adventure game studio games that they created were absolutely amazing. Um, and many of them, of course, uh, eventually started working as professional game designers, um, including, of course, uh, bleh, why am I blanking? Dave Gilbert yep. and many of the other games that came out on those uh, from Wadjet Games as a publisher. That interview is especially interesting because it kind of like explains that trajectory and, you know, his process making games and being part of those, you know, adventure game studio jams and then figuring out like at what point he could help become a publisher and help other people popularize their games. And, you know, the point he realized that the studio was going to make it big, I think was with Gemini Rue, mm-hmm. which was, I think, an early game that they published. So it's it's a very interesting read. I mean, the whole thing is an interesting read. Some of these interviews yes. are just fascinating. And the interviews all sort of follow a, a similar trajectory where they kind of open it up with saying like, What's your history of point and click adventure games? Did you know you were a, did you always know that you had like artistic tendencies when you were a child? Uh, but then they spin it off, of course, into the specifics of the games themselves. And they're not, like we said, they're not just interviewing the artists, although many of the artists are, and designers are, are uh, featured here. They talk about the, the game design sensibilities that went into them. Um, there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, conversations, like I mentioned a second ago, like crunch was a massive problem at these studios as it is today with like, you know, classic people sleeping under their desks. And back then these were not developed. These were not like hundreds of people, developer teams, like what blows your mind when you read about some of these seminal games and they had development teams of like four people. Yeah. And, uh, that would just be amazing. It's difficult to even imagine. I know. <laughs> I know. And uh, especially in the earlier days, uh, they talk a lot about the um, restrictions that were put on the artists at the time uh, in terms of the tools they got to use. Yeah, very true. And in some cases, if they wanted to do something for a game, they made a new tool to make it work. Oh, yeah. Like, well, Scum, for example. The eh, uh, Yep, that's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> you knew it. Utility for Maniac Mansion. And like... The artists would, I think my favorite thing is they, a lot of the artists are just like, have you ever tried drawing with a bar of soap? That's what it's like to work on. That was like to work on earlier because they had to design everything using the mouse uh, because like Photoshop didn't exist and scanners cost thousands upon thousands of dollars. So they couldn't digitize their, their like hand drawing. So they had to draw everything on computer. I remember a bit in one of the LucasArts interviews where they were super excited to have one scanner. (laughs) Because it made their job so much easier. Oh, no. Was, was it the... They weren't super excited, though. I can't remember. It was oh. one of them. Who, it was they were like, a scanner. What the heck is this crap? Right, right, I, right. I don't need... There was one develop. There was one uh, artist who was like, what the hell is this? A scanner? That's terrible. I can do it all on the thing. And then they saw the results and they were like... Oh, right, okay. Better. I was skipping ahead in my... <laughs> I was skipping ahead in my brain to the part where they realized how much work it saved them. Oh yeah. It saved them so much work, but (laughs) it's just funny that it doesn't matter if something better comes along. It's just like, you're still so stuck in your workflow. You're like, no, I'm doing it the way I do it. I'm sure 
Many of us have seen that or can relate to that somehow. It's so many amazing games uh, that really don't get featured very often, uh, even th- even by us, because they are sort of, I don't want to say forgotten, but like even there are some LucasArts adventure games that I haven't played and that I've been meaning to play for years. Uh, three of them, actually. Uh, Zach McCracken, mm-hmm. which was the follow-up to Maniac Mansion and looks very, very similar. Um, Loom. Ah, uh, yes, Loom. And uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I really need to get, I really need to, to play those games. There are so many. Loom was, I think I mentioned this like at the, at the beginning of my my preview. It's one that I missed out on. But mm-hmm. I saw the art and then just like had to learn everything I possibly could about it. And I, I caved and watched a playthrough of it, but I still really want to play it. It looks beautiful. And I mean, it, it's technically using scum, but inst- it doesn't use any verbs. It instead uses uh, musical notes for puzzle solving. And there's some really neat ways that they that they use that. I think one of my favorite things, and I think they explain this a little bit um, in the book, is that because they're using these musical notes for uh, Bobbin to you know do his spells, um, you learn the spells you know throughout the environment however you can actually if you play the spell backwards you can actually have the opposite effect sometimes and so that's kind of worked into the puzzle solving which is really cool and the kind of thing that seems obvious when you say it but like playing the game maybe not yeah when it was developed they were trying different things and trying to figure out what works and that ended up being a very unique mechanic i mean i can think of a handful of other games that use music to that degree. Wander Song is the first one that comes to Mm. my mind. But yeah, just really, really fun. It is. One of the things that you mentioned in the review, which I kind of alluded to with like a lot of anything that has a narrative nowadays owns a tremendous debt to point-and-click adventure games. Uh, And technically, are they point-and-click adventure games? Are they adventure games like Firewatch, for example? Yep. (laughs) Feels like it should be in this book, but it doesn't quite fit under the genre. It's kind of like our our never-ending conversation about whether or not we should cover Metroidvanias. It is, because this book really makes you think a lot about that. How do you classify something when it has this through line kind of throughout a lot of like computing history? Where do you draw the line? What exactly do you need to have for it to be a point-and-click? Yeah. Obviously not a strict point-and-click interface anymore, because some of the games don't exactly have the strict classic interface. No, I, uh, I actually... One of the cool things that when I was reading it, I I recently went on a bit of a uh, a bit of a retro uh, quest because I, I had them sitting in my library for a while, and I decided to play uh, some of the Lucas Arts uh, Double Fine remasters uh, that were out. So, like a couple of months ago, I played through uh, Day of the Tentacle remastered, and I played through Full Throttle remastered, and it's always interesting playing games like that because, especially games that you loved as a child. Like, do they hold up? Do they still work? And boy, how do you do they? <laughs> That's so good to hear. The thing I did most recently that was similar to that was Grim Fandango, oh, which yeah. obviously I'm going to say it held up well. <laughs> and for fun, I, uh, I switched some of the dialogue to Spanish. <laughs> That's a nice touch. How is the Spanish? I would imagine good. I'm not an expert, but it seemed to function pretty well. Like the, the localization of it seemed pretty good. Yeah, from what I could tell. I imagine it somewhat. I imagine it was somewhat similar to, like back when I would do French immersion. We, you know, it was basically English deprivation. We weren't allowed any English media or conversation. English was like contraband. You like smuggled English like cigarettes. 
Um, but uh, I discovered that Ratatouille works way better in French than it does in English for obvious reasons. <laughs> but uh, and that that's not discounting like Patton Oswalt or any of those performances. But it's just like, oh yeah, this takes place in Paris. They're all French. This makes sense. Exactly. And I imagine it would be very similar with Grim Fandango. That, yeah, that that basically sums up my feelings pretty well. Although it it was like. I would say I know kind of the opening and the opening dialogue the best. So it was interesting to see like kind of how they translated some of the wordplay, right? And mm. colloquialisms and things like that. Because there's, you know, there's a lot of that. Well, Anything that Tim Schafer writes, you know, is pretty, pretty dense, like localization wise. <laughs> to put it mildly, yes. Yeah. Um, man, I would love to see some, there's there's not really a market for it, but I would genuinely love to see some history of uh, of the uh, AGS, uh, like a history of the AGS uh, communities and some of the, some of the uh, amateur games that were made back then. And how they develop. Like I remember uh, some like some of the developers, they aren't game developers now, but they developed into uh, big game personalities. For example, uh, Yahtzee from Zero Punctuation. Yes. Uh, for those who don't know, he is a uh, video game reviewer and probably I would say the funniest video game reviewer on the internet. Uh, his Zero Punctuation series is amazing. But he uh, designed a series of point-and-click adventure games. And uh, actually there was one that used a text parser instead of point and click um that were like really dark and uh scary in places but like really really great story really really excellent writing so it's interesting to see how that community spun off uh a lot of a lot of people in the gaming industry and their careers definitely i mean you see that story or similar stories multiple times especially with like the more recent games in the third edition there seems to be like a real sense of community and it's some of the stories about i find some of the stories about their earlier games interesting as well like uh let's just call you a uh a minor fan of the game mist yes that's fair uh <laughs> uh they i'm trying to find the mist interview here uh they talk they talk to uh robin robin yeah Miller? yeah okay. yeah uh they talk to him about uh the games they made before yes. uh, they developed Myst, uh, the manhole, for example, mm -hmm. uh, these games were for Mac essentially. They were, and they were developed in hypercard years and years ago. Uh, and they were very innovative for their time. And like they made games for children essentially. Yeah. But just kind of like, there was an interesting discussion, sort of like around artistic freedom and brainstorming and generating ideas for these earlier games versus Myst, And it was a, really neat theme to that interview it's interesting how uh, point and click adventure games have sort of become well i mean indie because AAA studios aren't really touching them with the 10-foot pole there are games that use ideas of point and click adventure games like life is strange and such like that but mm -hmm. like that style like the the classic lucasarts sierra style of point and click adventure games is in the domain of indies now but what i found interesting uh especially reading about the early days at sierra and lucasarts is there was a very indie mentality at the time where the developer and the publisher didn't really give a crap about what they were working on or they were just like a bunch of people would be in a room and they were like i want to write a game about pirates and they're like all right go at it Whatever. let's watch a bunch of errol flynn pirate movies yeah so they would like they just like they were in uh skywalker ranch they would just take over one of george lucas's like studio or uh theaters and just watch a ton of pirate films did you uh did you watch the documentary double fine adventure yes i did okay because i started looking through this book kind of at the same time i was re i was re-watching that 
And I got a little bit of the feel of how that watching them kind of start to develop Broken Age felt a little bit like maybe it would have been back then, but just amped up, amplified many times. Um, if anyone out there is curious what we're talking about, it's called Double Fine Adventure. Uh, and it's a, I guess it's a, a documentary series. The entire thing is on YouTube. Yes. Uh, uh, focused around the Kickstarter for Broken Age and talking about like it, it's the development there and it's it's figuring out how to basically how to make a game. And this book happens to be like fairly LucasArts over here, I would say. Uh, and if you're a fan of LucasArts at all, there's plenty of Tim Schafer and a decent amount of Ron Gilbert in it. Yeah, and they, that's another thing, cool thing they talk about is uh, in those interviews and other interviews with some of the people behind uh, the art, talking about the differences between developing an adventure game today in comparison to what it was then, because like Broken Age is trying to carry forward what hap- what they were doing at LucasArts. And Thimbleweed Park, for example, is their pitch was, this is like a LucasArts adventure game that you find in the bottom of your drawer that you have never seen before, um, but adopts the mentality that I think is the best way to do a retro anything, which is it plays the way you remember it playing rather than the way it actually was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That could be a quite the distinction. Yeah, it can. Um, oh man, Mist. I've never played Mist. I played it a little bit, like, but I've never actually gotten my way all the way through it. I really should. It's definitely, definitely worth it. I actually, I have to admit, and I think I've said this on retro. Um, the thing that really got me through it and got me playing most of the series was actually the novelizations. I had the novelization of Mist when I was in uh, middle school. Nice. I don't think I read it. I think it was on my shelf, though. So people would think I was an intellectual video game fan, <laughs> the age of 13. <laughs> I, fun personal story, which I don't know whether we're going to keep this in or not. We'll see. But I I think I got that book in like fifth or sixth grade is when the first one came out, um, the book of Atris. And I I accidentally left it at my elementary school after I think between fifth and sixth grade. And then we had a different classroom, so I kind of forgot about it. And then I came back to visit a couple years later to see, because it just happened to work out, work out that I had the same teacher for about half of elementary school. So I was oh. pretty close with her. Uh, so I came back to just say hello, because I, I lived right down the road from my elementary school. <laughs> and she told me that um, only myself and one other classmate of mine who was a good friend were ever able to actually had the fluency to, to read it. In fifth or sixth grade. Oh, that's nice. It was, yeah, it was really sweet. But anyway, that was a tangent. No, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because this is this is random book club. But back in those days, back in the the '90s, uh, a lot of game developers there was a lot of crossover with different uh, different genres and novelizations of games, especially especially like narrative games, were pretty popular. And Mist was the biggest. Mist was yeah for its time. This thing. I would argue that Mist is probably responsible for selling more computers than just about any other piece of software in the mid '90s. Yeah, not not to mention the whole effect it had on like CD-ROM and oh, the development yeah. and use of CD-ROM and computers. Yeah, the game still is gorgeous in terms of its design, and there have been a lot of different versions of Mist uh, released over the years. From there's a few remasters. Uh, I know there's a full uh, full remake called Real Mist, which is. Uh, it, it's first person freedom. So you can just walk everywhere. Unlike yes. the original, which is like screen, screen, screen. 
Yep. Um, but the original was a uh, it was a system seller for sure. Like video games didn't look like this, and that's very rare for something in this sort of like narrative point and click genre. They were not generally system sellers. No, they weren't. Um, I find it interesting how for many people in the gaming industry, point and click adventure games was it was where they wanted to work. Because mm -hmm. that's where you got the freedom, that the uh, narrative freedom, and the the musical freedom, and the artistic freedom, uh, the design freedom. Exactly. In many ways, it kind of pushed technology forward. But you know, from a consumer perspective, you you might have been like slightly less aware of that, or not, depending on how closely you're paying attention. Well, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that this book specifically, I mean, it's the art of point and click adventure games. One thing that it uh, demonstrates is just how insanely beautiful these games were. And distinctive. Yeah. Like you would think there's only so much you can do with pixels, but I mean, there's so much variety here. Oh yeah. Like Loom, going back to Loom again, it's it's gorgeous to this day. And I'm not even talking about like re-releases where they updated the uh, the art from 16 colors to 265 or 256 colors. Like I'm talking about the original. It's stunning. Yeah. Like it, they're just beautiful, beautiful games. I think one of my... One of my other favorites is um, the Quest for Glory series because, you know, Lori and Corey Cole have been active and experimenting and making newer games like Hero U. Um, so you can kind of look at the games over time and how they changed and how they're all in their way extremely pretty. Oh, yeah. And I mean, maybe it's because most backgrounds were static. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of movement. Like there wasn't, there was a little bit of scrolling in some of them. They could really spend the time on making these incredibly detailed environments uh, that really immersed you in a place, uh, whether that be in like the classic third person style uh, that we recognize from uh, like Lucas, most LucasArts and Sierra games or the first person style of Myst. Mm -hmm. No, I just, I just, th this book is, I was, I got it for Christmas uh, and it's been sitting on my shelf for quite some time because although I was very interested in it, it's a big friggin' book. Yes. Um, and this gave me an, a really great excuse to read it. And I am so glad I did. I, I commend you for reading it cover to cover, by the way. I, I kind of had to approach it in chunks and go back, back and forth and come back to it and leave many, many times. It's really funny, uh, going through it because we talk a lot, <laughs> <laughs> we talk a lot nowadays about uh remasters and the 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 hot and, and remakes and the current uh the current uh hot topic is the last of us part one which is why are you remaking the last of us it was only released a few years ago you just released a remaster why are you doing a remake and it's like it's this new thing and it's like it's a it's a it's a fad that they're just remaking all their games and what's hilarious is going through uh sierra's <laughs> early Sierra games, especially <laughs> it's like half their, if you think, you know what King's quest one looks like, no, you don't because you probably haven't played King's quest one. You've probably played the remake of King's quest one that got released a few years later on a completely different engine yep. for Sierra, especially they're like a lot of their bread and butter seem to be releasing, uh, expanded, uh, versions of their classic games, uh, in their updated, uh, adventure game engines. Engines. Yep. And collections and things like that. Yeah. There's an interesting thing in these in this book. Uh, when I think point-and-click adventure games, I pretty much think about PC. 
or I guess Mac, but I think about personal computers. Yes. Uh, it seems like over the years, attempts to port a lot of point-and-click adventure games to consoles has been met with uh, failure, interesting successes at best, shall we say. Um, because these games are designed with the idea of a pointer in mind. It's a point-and-click adventure game. And exactly. <laughs> uh, in recent years, it seems like there have been genuine efforts to figure out an interface uh, on consoles that works for point-and-click adventure games. Uh, and I'm still not sure they've done it, to be completely honest. Yeah, I am I think you covered it. I mean, there have been some interesting successes. There have been, you know, functional methods so far. You can play it. Yeah, but I think I'd have to agree with you. I don't think anything has quite approached that kind of the sense of immersion you, you get from being able to use the mouse. Yeah, especially for this genre. It's just, it's, it, so, it's hard to pixel hunt when you're using a controller. It is, and... I'm a pretty sensory person and I always felt like playing point and clicks kind of using the mouse just helped my sense of immersion because it felt a little bit like a natural continuation of, you know, the the way you would um, just track your eyes around looking for something. Let's talk about uh, current generation uh, sure. point click adventure games because that's, I mean, kind of the, it's not the emphasis of the, th of the third edition because it obviously has all of the material from the early editions, but some of the games that... Uh, have been released in the last few years. Has there been any that have really uh, made a massive impact on you? Oh, I'm going to have to start by admitting that I have not had as much time to play as I would like. But some some recent like point and click and point and click adjacent games that have made more of an impact on me. Um, from what I've seen, I haven't had a chance to play it much. And I mean, 2018, that's... So not super, super recent, but kind of recent. Unavowed, definitely. Unavowed was so good. Yeah. I, and I love, I love kind of the, the concept description of it where they, they said just kind of like the conceptual description for Unavowed, which I think actually makes a ton of sense, is a Bioware narrative structure, but where you can pick your party, you go out and depending on who you bring with you, you know, puzzles change or solutions to situations change. But just within that kind of point and click style. Yeah. I just think that's such a neat idea because that narrative structure, like a lot of people really like that about those games. Well, I've recently got really into Bioware. Um, I, I didn't really play a lot of Bioware games except for KOTOR. Um, and that was years ago. And I played Unavowed before my recent uh, binge of Bioware. And now like looking looking back forward at my time with Avowed, <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> It's like a Bioware game without the combat. Right? That's wild. And it is, it's just a gorgeous game. Like the pixel art in that game mm -hmm. is just sensational. Um, I've reviewed a number of like more recent point-click adventure games for the site, including uh, Whispers of a Machine, uh, which I really liked. It was, I think I described it as a, it's, it's not a super substantial game. It's a short story. Um, and as a short story, it was quite enjoyable. And Kathy Rain, of course. Yeah. Um, the ga a game that I've not reviewed for the site, but I was... I was delighted to see it get a really big feature and they interviewed uh, one of the developers behind it and they gave it some art because I think it's a gorgeous game is Fran Bow. Yes, I was going to mention that. And and Little Misfortune, which I'm... I'm yeah. yeah. Have you played Fran Bow? A little bit. It is so screwed up. I just love it. Like, it's not the best point-and-click adventure game I've played in the last few years. It's not even the best modern point-and-click adventure game I've played in the last few years. But I think it's visual identity and it's animation and... What it is doing is uh, 
it, it's a very memorable game for me. Yeah, it sets it apart. Definitely. Yeah, I was really happy to see it get a spotlight in the book. It has such a distinctive visual style. I would kind of feel like this book might be a little bit incomplete without it. Yeah. What did you think of Broken Age? I really enjoyed it. I I went in definitely not expecting it to be, you know, an old LucasArts game or you know, I tried to like, uh, uh, what's the term? Oh my gosh, manage my expectations mm. around it. And I think that was pretty effective because I enjoyed it a lot. I I know a lot of the puzzles aren't quite the same and depending on you know, which part of it you're playing. There are some pacing issues and the puzzle difficulty kind of is not consistent between the two halves and just the fact that there are two halves at all. But I don't know. I just got very swept up in the characters and the art style. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. There were, it didn't quite hit the way I was really hoping it was going to hit me. That's that fair. being said, there were some characters in it that, you know, felt very much they were very original, but they felt like they were. It had the same magic as those point of adventure games. Like the uh, uh, the character of the tree, for example, is absolutely hysterical. Yes. Yeah, just this this tree that has a, a massive problem with uh, humans. I mean, I I get it. I can I can imagine that. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, and it's it's so funny because we talk about like how point and click adventure games vanished, and they did if you lived in the West uh, and America, uh, I guess in my case Canada. But point and click adventure games were always very popular in uh, pockets of Europe, and during that drought, there were uh, there were uh, several uh, exceptional games that were Siberia, for example, and, yes. and a number of others. And Siberia is actually uh, new in the third edition, so that's a good game to bring up. Yeah, Siberia. Uh, Ooh, can we count the Longest Journey series? Yes, we can count the Longest Journey series. Uh, what, what's their name? Um, Pendulo, Stu- Pendulo Studios. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, they did uh, a, game, a game series called Runaway, which I kind of consider to be almost a spiritual successor to Broken Sword. Oh, nice. In many ways, which I, I, I'm going to be completely honest and say, I do not, I did not enjoy Broken Sword or Broken Sword 2. I feel terrible saying that because they are classics of the genre, but I didn't like them very much. Don't feel bad. They're classics I missed out on, so I have not played them yet. I, I didn't play them when they were out. Like, obviously, like, especially when they came out, like, oh my God, these games look incredible. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when I played them, uh, they just, I don't know. They never really clicked for me, especially the ending of two. The ending of two is terrible. Um, mm-hmm. but runaways are road adventure. Uh, the first one is fine. It's short, pretty game, very pretty game has a very interesting visual style, uh, that look, I think it's visual style. I think makes it look like it has a bigger budget than it does. Like it uses cell shading in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've released several games, uh, in the runaway series, uh, Oh, they had a they had a classic point and click style adventure game called uh, Hollywood Monsters, and it was using pixel art, and it looked like a it looked like a classic point and click adventure game. It was never released in English, and then they did a complete remake of it called The Next Big Thing, uh, which postulated that all of the Hollywood monsters, like in the 1930s, were actually real and they were all movie stars. Oh, and it's like this detective story, and it it's fun. Uh, they they have done some very interesting games uh, that I have enjoyed, and then of course there's the there's the thing that a lot of people we don't feel comfortable talking about anymore because it was such a disappointment, and they're back now, uh, which is Telltale. Yes. Uh, last summer I watched uh, No Clip did a documentary uh, on Telltale Games and their closure last year, and it's one of the most heartbreaking uh, docs I've ever seen about uh, a video game studio, and specifically, obviously, because it was closing. 
but like especially in the early days of that studio where they were before they got wrapped up in uh trying to make as many ip related games as possible back when they were doing uh their first game was actually have you ever read bone no uh it's a comic book series by jeff smith hillary i i can't say for certain but i have this odd feeling that you specifically would really really love bone okay it is it, it is a it's a fantasy series like it's 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 set in a fantasy world uh, it, it has like elements that kind of look Disney, but it doesn't, it, it's really interesting. Anyway, uh, the very first game that, uh, Telltale released was Bone out of Boneville, which was a adaptation of the comic book series. Unfortunately, it was never, uh, it, it was an episodic adventure game, but they never completed the series. Aww. Um, yeah, they, 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 they only completed like this one out of Boneville was the name of it. I know it sounds suggestive, but there's nothing suggestive about it. It's just called Bone. <laughs> I'm going to recommend that to you, and I'm going. I don't know why I think of you and fairy tales in the same sentence. I don't know. Do you like fairy tales? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, any I sort of like myths or fairy tales. Yeah, myths and fairy tales. I feel like Bone is something that would be right up your alley by a guy named Jeff Smith. Perfect. Um, okay. And the other one, which is another thing that I think would be up your alley, and which also dovetails into Telltale Games, which is the comic book series Fables. Ah. Uh, which is a long-running comic book series, uh, which. Uh, Telltale adapted into a episodic adventure game. Is it Wolf Among Us? The Wolf Among Us, yes, ah, uh, which yep. stars uh, the the big bad wolf as a uh, as the sheriff of Fable Town. That is that is one of the few Telltale games I have some experience with, and yes, I enjoyed the game, so I probably would enjoy the comic series too. I think you'd really enjoy the comic book series. I think it's right up your alley. Um, and the Wolf Among Us two, very tragically, it was going to have a sequel, and then Telltale, of course, closed, but. It's announced that the developers of The Wolf Among Us are back. They're releasing the sequel. It's being developed right now. So we're getting the sequel, which is very exciting. It is. I'm eagerly anticipating it and hoping the best for the team. Yeah, I am too. But like Telltale Games uh, released, obviously, uh, they're best known for uh, The Walking Dead nowadays, um, which I played the first one. It wasn't my cup of tea. It was fine. just wasn't quite my kind of game. Um... But I firmly believe that their uh, Sam and Max series, uh, all three seasons of Sam and Max, are just exceptional games. That's so great to hear. Like I know it's like a little bit of a focal point in the book. Mm. Just the interesting kind of full circle experience of Telltale, like getting the rights to some of those old properties like Sam and Max and Monkey Island. <sighs> okay, I, I got to be honest. Like even when I said like before they started doing IP, but I mean they were always doing IP. They've they, I think they created one, one or two original uh, IPs, but realistically speaking, there was like, it was Bone, and then they did Sam and Max, those series. They did a series of adventure games based around Homestar Runner called Strong Bad's Cool Game for Attractive People. <laughs> yep. Speaking of which, why have we not referenced the, uh, the Strong Bad email about text-based adventure games yet? Oh, Peasant Quest. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh for those who did not grow up on the internet uh, in the 2010s, or was it the tw- or was it, or was it just the 2000s? Uh, Homestar Runner used to release uh, many, many classic game parodies, and they released like a full a full parody of King's Quest called Peasants Quest. It it was surprisingly involved, like it as actually a pretty fun functioning adventure game. <laughs> yeah, in, it is in many ways. <laughs> Well, they also like they other they released a uh, a Mega Man parody called Twenty XD Six, too, which which was a side scroller. Um, yeah, 
it's funny they uh, the what were they the brothers uh what were their names the brothers uh something brothers uh why am i blanking i'm always blanking the brothers chapman that was it there were two guys uh, the chapman brothers yes and they yeah and they uh developed homestar runner it was one of the biggest Unfortunately, i was blanking to it I'm like i know i know what you're talking about yep it was mm. one of the biggest things and it was in the 2000s it was it was 2000 to uh probably about 2010 uh and they had like it was a heck of a run like massive amounts of fans yep. and they created this entire universe um and of course they got telltale to do an adventure game based on their property and it's a pretty damn good adventure game i would really like to see some of those games like if they continue updating this book just because it's such an interesting cultural touchstone that this oh yeah amazing and funny internet phenomenon has just such a deep appreciation for and you know such thorough references to like these games I don't know it'd be an interesting addition oh yeah uh, completely and like uh, what else did they do they got they got the license to Monkey Island and they did the technically the fifth Monkey Island game which is a five part adventure series called Tales of Monkey Island yes and uh, they did they did Back to the Future the game which I'm. I wouldn't argue that I'm the world's biggest Back to the Future fan, but I would argue <laughs> that I'm probably in the top 100, um, considering I'm looking at my prop replica flux capacitor right now. Uh, yeah, they, uh, I, you know, I enjoyed that game for what it was. And then, of course, they did The Walking Dead and The Walking Dead 2 and they did Tales of Borderland and Game of Thrones and Batman and Guardians of the Galaxy and, oh my God, so many others. And then all of a sudden it all started to fall apart. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well. Um, bottom line is, if you are a fan of point-and-click adventure games, that this is the kind of book that you really should uh, have on your shelf. At least I think so. Yep. Whether you want to use the fantastic art to convince uh, people that video games, in particular point-and-click games, are an art form, or you know, you already know a lot about the genre. There's still more to learn in this book. There's so much information. Like Even if you were a seasoned adventure gamer... Um, you will find some new things. Oh my God, yes. And like, especially with some of the newer games, like a game that I really would like to check out, um, which I hadn't even heard of before, uh, is a game called uh, The Lion Song. Yeah, that looked really good. Yeah, it looks gorgeous. It's set in pre-war Austria. Uh, it uses a, a very limited color palette. Yeah, kind of sepia. Yeah, it's sepia color palette um, to create a very interesting looking uh, looking game. Uh, it, it just looks really, really cool. And there are other games like classic. I'm, I'm saying classic because they came out like 10 years ago. Um, hang on. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, where is it? Oh, I mean, here's a, here's a game. Kentucky Route Zero came out. Finally, the last part came out very recently. And that's been on my to playlist for years now. I just wanted yeah. to wait till the whole thing came out to play it. Same. And then if you turn the page... Look how good Broken Age looks in that double page spread. Yeah. It looks so good. Oh, the game I really want to play, which I haven't yet, is The Whispered World. Yeah, that sounds really, really good. Yeah. I mean, these games are, if you love adventure games, there are so many games out there that you've probably never played before. And many of which we have not reviewed. And to be frank, I would love to uh, get some more adventure game reviews. I mean, I would argue maybe people listening to this on staff might disagree, but I would say that you and I are probably the biggest adventure game fans on the site. Yes, there there were more of us. <laughs> At one time. <laughs> if we disappear, you know what happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I have a question. Yeah. Were there any games that had prominent spreads or features in this book where you thought, I didn't know anyone else ever played that game because I had one. What was it? Future Wars. I have never played Future Wars. It was it was one of those games that my 
childhood bestie had at her dad's house. So I only got to play it like very, very infrequently. And it fascinated me and it drove me nuts that I couldn't finish it. Aw, that's <laughs> too bad. That's another one that I think like Loom just has really, really gorgeous artwork because it's got, you know, a time traveling motif. So you have these really pretty future backgrounds and medieval backgrounds and modern city backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You get a little bit of everything. I would say that probably Freddie Farkas, Far- Fr- ah, Freddie Farkas, Frontier Pharmacist. Right. And that's, that's the game that uh, Josh Mandel himself was lead on, right? Yeah. Not- it was kind of like, it was a sort of spinoff from Leisure Suit Larry. I think at one point they were like, he's Leisure Suit Larry's great, great grandfather, great, great, great grandfather. <laughs> I think in some of the uh, publicity at the time, but it was a very funny game. Uh, and it's funny because normally Sierra isn't quite my cup of tea because I don't I, I don't like dying in adventure games. It's fair. But there are so many games like while they cover, it'd be impossible to cover everything. Like, heck, they cover Star Trek Judgment Rights and 25th Anniversary, for gosh sake. Uh, they have a feature talking about uh, there's a uh, they, they the Scooby-Doo adventure game for Sega Genesis. Like there are a lot of games that are niche, I guess you could say, that are included in this. And some licensed games like. I think Daria's Inferno is in there too. Yeah, Daria Inferno's in there too. Um, but like the the Beavis and Butthead adventure game isn't. Right, which I've heard is the better one of the two by I've far. Actually, I've heard it's actually pretty darn good. Yeah. Which who would have thought the Sega Genesis, home of point and click adventure games, <laughs> starring 90s, uh, 90s cartoon characters. Really Mike Judge character, yeah. Yeah, I feel like... The death of the adventure game has been one of those things that people, I think a lot of the same people who said adventure games are dead are the same people who said 2D games are dead uh, back in that period of time when uh, the idea of doing a 2D side scroller was a massive risk and it'd be much better to do a very poorly optimized 3D platformer. Right. Um, I feel like that sort of mentality was the same thing and adventure games never went anywhere. Like I said, they... Uh, like we were talking about, they went to Europe for a while and then Telltale had a resurgence and then they went to the indie space uh, and they're still in the indie space and they're still there and they're going to be remaining there. And I mean, one of the biggest uh, announcements for me and for a lot of people was that uh, there's going to be a new Monkey Island game coming out. Yes. So perfect time to check out this book before that releases. It's Ron and Dave. Are both yeah, working on it? Yep, both of them are uh, coming to are coming to uh, uh, do it, and it's coming out this year. Which it's coming out this year. I I'm, <laughs> I'm not convinced about that. I feel like that's a that's a uh, aspirational release date, but we'll see. Could be. Yeah, it could be. Um, and a very interesting art style, which I I, I don't I didn't get any hate mail about it in the last episode of Random where I complained about the internet ragging on them for the art style, but because uh, uh, I it's a gorgeous it's a gorgeous art style that looks almost like uh, paper puppets. Like yeah, I liked it in the trailer. I, I have to admit. Yeah, it's like Monkey Island by way of Paper Mario. But I mean, they, they need this book because how much has Monkey Island's art style changed? I know. It's actually a lot. <laughs> well, there's a, there's like several different art styles. There's the original pixel art style exactly. of one and two. There's a Curse of Monkey Island, which went to like full uh, Disney animation style art. There's Escape from Monkey Island, which kind of translated that to three, sort of. There's Tales of Monkey Island, which sort of translated that into a more modern day context where it lost some of the cartooniness. Then we have the remakes 
of uh the i guess the remasters of uh, uh monkey island one and two which it, it has a very divisive art style so yeah give it a chance believe me the developers know what they're doing and if you don't believe me buy this book and read it and you will then believe me <laughs> there's some prime there's some evidence right there there's um, a bit of evidence <laughs> yeah i gotta admit that's i think at some points that's those sorts of like transitions and trying different art styles sometimes i think lucasarts did that a bit better than sierra mm. i'm i'm thinking of uh king's quest seven right now which mm-hmm. you know some parts of it looked really pretty but a lot of people complain about the art style in that one. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, if you are curious about the art style of King's Quest Seven or any of the other Sierra or LucasArts adventure games, check yes. out the art of point-and-click adventure games because it is a gorgeous book that is filled with beautiful artwork uh, and just some unbelievably in-depth, interesting interviews. Yes, it really does teleport you back to a different time of game history. It does. It does. It it's it's very good. And I think it it really. One of the points that hit home for me, and I think it's a pretty good, you know, closing point is just how much that creativity is still there. And like you said, these games haven't really gone anywhere. There are plenty of people still making this art, still making these games, and they're still beautiful. They really, really are. Well, that was this episode of Random Book Club. Um, if you want to listen to our prior episode of Random Book Club, you can find it in our uh, Random Encounter Archives, where we talk about uh, a guide to Japanese role-playing games, which was, again, a great book. Um, so we have tons of episodes of Random Encounter that you can check out, but that we are not the only podcast that we have here at RPG Fan. We also have Retro Encounter. And two weeks ago, uh, Hillary, you actually took lead on a very special episode of Retro Encounter, uh, focusing on game accessibility. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I did. It was a really, really fun episode. It was one of our kind of special topics. Um, and it was a, it was three of us just kind of going through talking a little bit about what, what gaming accessibility is, why it's, imp- why it's so important, how it helps keep games creative and how it's not just making games easy for people. Um, and we talked a little bit about games themselves and the different features they have, um, some resources to learn more about what sorts of tools are out there for accessibility. Um, and some of our favorite and least favorite aspects and tools and things that are done for accessibility as well. It's an incredibly important topic. And I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that you had an opportunity to focus on it. That is fantastic. Me too. I'm really grateful. And I think the episode came out well. And uh, we also just had uh, Rant- Retro just released uh, their latest episode, which was focusing on Tales of Zillia Part 1. Yes. Um, so th- they'll be continuing that uh, probably next week. Um, we also have Rhythm Encounter, which is RPG Fans' music podcast. Last week was Square Dance, and that was focusing on the music of strategy RPGs um, because, I guess, grid-based strategy games? Square Dance? Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Um, and uh, next week, next Monday, it's going to be focusing on uh, just Super Nintendo. The Super Nintendo. not Probably not the Super Nintendo games that you would think of, but Super Nintendo uh, music from other RPGs and other games in genres that we cover from the Super Nintendo era. Um, so yeah, check that out. We'll be back in two weeks, of course. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can fire me off a message at podcastrpgfan.com. I'd love to hear from you if you have any uh, ideas for future episodes, uh, discussion questions. I love getting discussion questions from people. Uh, alternatively, if you have an idea for RPG Fan Book Club, 
uh, please give us a heads up. Uh, if you'd like to see, send me an email, you can do so at jloganrpgfan.com or you can find me on Twitter at Jono underscore Logan. Uh, Hillary, where can we find you online? Um, the best way to reach me uh, for RPG Fan or you know, game book related stuff is um, Discord and I'm EP Fire on Discord. Cool. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with your friends to help us get the word out there. You can rate us on iTunes or your other podcast players of choice. Uh, Hillary, again, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about this book. Uh, well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> look, any excuse to talk about point-and-click adventure games, honestly. Yes, I agree. I, I love talking about point-and-click adventure games, with you specifically. Uh, the last time we had it, I guess it wasn't really an opportunity to talk about point-and-click adventure games, but the last time we were on an episode talking about a point-and-click adventure game, you made a uh, cameo as an admiral who was chewing me out on the Star Trek episode. Ah, uh, yes. I remember which, that. Which was the openings <laughs> of those two episodes are uh, discounting the karaoke episode of, of, of uh, Rhythm Encounter, probably the stupidest thing I've ever done for the site. But, I, oh my God, I need they to were fun. To them oh, again. they're so dumb. They're so stupid. Uh, uh. You don't even listen to the whole episodes. Just listen to the opening of both of them because, oh, they're dumb. I can't believe Solosi let me do that. <laughs> it's fun. It was very fun. fun. And then before that, it was um, Adventure Game Music. Yes, we did an Adventure Game Music episode, which was great. I Yeah, that was a really good time. Yeah, we're just going to keep forcing Adventure Game content on the site. So get ready, everyone. <laughs> yep. uh, so no matter what, whether you're playing an RPG or you're playing a point-click adventure game, whatever you're playing, have fun.